Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. It's been a week of mostly depressing news for Ukraine, with only the occasional shaft of light dispelling the gloom. In a sign that President Zelensky's government is losing patience with at least some of his military commanders, two cyber chiefs and the head of the medical forces have been sacked. There are also reports that Iran could soon send ballistic missiles to Russia, while frontline Ukrainian soldiers have spoken about the fear that they cannot win a war of exhaustion. On the other hand, Ukrainian forces have expanded their bridgehead on the eastern, that's the left bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, to a distance of up to five miles, that's eight kilometres. And the Russian Ministry of Defence is struggling to subdue what it considers to be a hysterical response to these gains from nationalist mill bloggers. Other encouraging signs are the announcement by the German Defence Minister, Boris Pistorius, that Germany will supply Ukraine with 20,000 much-needed 155mm artillery rounds as part of a new £1.1 billion military aid package. And a visit to Kiev this week by the American Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, who reiterated US support for Ukraine and promised another $100 million worth of military kit including artillery munitions, anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. We'll discuss the significance of all this and where the war might be heading. But first of all, what about those sackings of senior military chiefs? Well, the first thing to say is we're not talking about senior battlefield commanders like Zeluzhny and Sersky. They seem to be safe for the time being. But Zelensky's government has given the chop to its two top cyber defence officials, Yuri Shiol and Viktor Zhora, the head and deputy head of the Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, whose jobs are, as they sound, to protect Ukraine from cyber attacks. Now, these two have been accused of inflating the value of a software deal by £1.4 million for their personal gain. In other words, corruption hasn't yet disappeared from the ranks of senior officials and won't any time soon, we suspect. Once again, you could say that dealing with people like this is a good sign that Ukraine is heading in the right direction. But on the other hand, for something like this to be happening amidst an existential struggle against Russia is, I would have thought, pretty shocking. The other sacking was of Major General Tetyana Ostashenko, the commander of the Armed Forces Medical Force. Following criticism over the poor quality of medical supplies available to servicemen, this has been repeatedly discussed in society, said President Zelensky in particular in the community of our combat medics, a fundamentally new level of medical support for our military is needed. He called in particular for more and better tourniquets, full digitalization, and better communication. Sources in Ukraine told The Telegraph that combat medics often suffer from poor training, with tourniquets often applied unnecessarily, which can result in unnecessary amputations. Now, the backdrop to all of this is, of course, a relative stalemate on the battlefield, certainly in eastern Zaporizhia and Donetsk, and a rising number of Ukrainian casualties. How many? Well, we don't know for sure, but independent sources suggest up to 30,000 dead and 100,000 wounded, which is, of course, dwarfed by Russia's 300,000 casualties, as we mentioned last week, but still a terrible total for a country with a population of under 44 million. Yeah, no, it's um, disturbing news, this, isn't it, Saul? I mean, President Zelensky has said that cynicism and corruption in time of war is high treason, which is, I suppose, is, is self-evident. But uh, it is quite shocking that it's, it's going on uh, this deep into the war. Unfortunately, there's another 
potential cloud over the horizon for Ukraine, and that's the suspicion that Iran could soon be sending ballistic missiles to Russia. Tehran, of course, has already supplied drones and bombs, artillery shells, etc., but uh, it may now be prepared to go a step further. Now, that's the warning that comes from the U.S. National Security Spokesman John Kirby, who said that uh, the Russian Defense Minister, Sergei Shoigu, who visited Tehran back in September, when he was there, he was shown a number of ballistic missiles, and he went on to say, we're therefore concerned that Iran is considering providing Russia with ballistic missiles for use in Ukraine. Now, in return, Russia will be giving the Iranians unprecedented defense cooperation, including on missiles, electronics, and air defense. Now, though Kirby didn't actually mention it, the real elephant in the room here must be that Russia, in its desperation to forge these military alliances, might even be prepared to assist in Iran's nuclear program. Even more worrying for Ukraine in the short term are signs that some of its soldiers are exhausted, they're short of musicians, and crucially, they no longer believe that victory on the battlefield is still possible. Now, there was a report this week from the front line in Donetsk when uh, Times reporter Tom Ball quoted senior commanders of the NATO-trained 21st Mechanized Brigade in Donetsk, saying they were in dire need of more artillery shells, explosives, anti-tank weapons and mines, and feared that the Gaza conflict was diverting deliveries to the Middle East with good reason, as we'll explain later. One of them said, we cannot simply rely on our foreign allies to help us because our allies are becoming exhausted themselves. Now, this kind of chimes with what we were saying last week, doesn't it? So what we were hearing from an unnamed source, I didn't want to give his name, who'd been with a unit who were saying exactly the same thing. They'd suffered very heavy casualties and morale was slumping. Now, there's a similar report in the Wall Street Journal quoting a private in Ukraine's 47th Brigade saying, we don't have a chance playing a war of exhaustion with Russia, which is what this seems to be becoming. The private's unit is defending Avdiivka in eastern Donetsk, which we've been talking about in recent weeks. Now, his company started out with 120 men, and of that original 120, there are now just 20 left, the others having been killed or wounded. And the replacements, uh, some of the replacements coming in are more than 40 years old. Another private is quoted as saying, we're still motivated. This is someone serving with the 110th Mechanized Brigade, also defending Avdiivka, but we're exhausted. Now, not surprisingly, there have been numerous reports of large-scale draft dodging going on with sizable numbers of fighting-age men, you know, who will, listeners will remember are forbidden to leave Ukraine, trying to escape uh, crossing the southern borders into Romania and Moldova, often uh, with the assistance, it would seem, of corrupt officials. There's a BBC World Service documentary you can see on YouTube called Ukraine's Draft Dodgers. It's pretty depressing stuff, isn't it, Saul? And more grist to the mill for those who say the only option for Ukraine now is a negotiated peace in which it's bound to lose some territory. Yes, and there's uh, also bad news on the political stroke diplomatic front with the news out of Holland just uh, given to us by our producer James that in fact the far-right party, the PBV, led by Gert Wilders, which is very anti-immigration, has just won the election in the sense that it has the highest number of seats in parliament. And what's particularly worrying about Wilders' stance is that he opposes sanctions against Russia and also opposes giving aid to Ukraine. And this, as listeners will remember, is particularly alarming when we consider that Holland was one of the countries that stepped forward to provide those F-16. So is that donation at risk? We'll have to wait and see. 
But I think in a broader sense, the voices saying that Ukraine can't win this war uh, do need to be stilled. And there is some hope, as we said at the top, in the sense that uh, Ukraine can still recover land on the battlefield. Because this week, we heard news that Ukrainian forces have expanded their bridgehead on the east, that is the left bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, by pushing Russian forces back up to five miles. Preliminary figures vary from three to eight kilometers, said an army spokesman, depending on the specifics, geography, and landscape design of the left bank. The Russian Ministry of Defense corroborated, unusually, Kyiv's claim by saying that Ukrainian marines had crossed the river roughly 20 miles upstream from Kherson city, but were being pounded by Russian artillery. The defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, followed this up by insisting that Russian forces had prevented all Ukrainian attempts to conduct successful amphibious operations in the Kherson direction. Well, we know that's not true. Shoigu went on to say that Russian forces are inflicting colossal losses on Ukrainian forces. Yet, according to the Institute for the Study of War, Shoigu's statement is likely an attempt to downplay some Russian mill bloggers' concerns over Russia's inability to decisively repel Ukrainian attacks on the east bank of the Dnipro River, but is unlikely to calm the ever-growing complaints in the Russian information space. So clearly it's a big worry for the Russians, and they're right to be worried. The ISW went on to report Ukrainian claims that it had established several bridgeheads on the east bank and was conducting operations to expand them. It pointed out that the definition of a bridgehead is a, and I quote, an area on the enemy side of the water obstacle that is large enough to accommodate the majority of the crossing force, has adequate terrain to permit defense of the crossing sites, provides security to crossing forces from enemy direct fire, and provides a base for continuing the attack. Well, if that's what the Ukrainians actually have, that's quite an achievement and may well, as I said last week, lead to more gains in what has been up till now a relatively thinly defended sector of the Russian line. But that's not the only encouraging news for the Ukrainians this week, is it, Patrick? Uh, No, like we said at the top, there have been these announcements of more military support from both Germany and the US. Germany's promise of an extra 20,000 155 artillery rounds as part of the overall new £1.1 billion pound military aid package is uh, very significant. These rounds are desperately needed. We keep hearing this from the battlefield. You know, we need ammunition. Uh, and the package also continues for additional IRIS-T air defense units, which have been very effective, as well as anti-tank mines. And Boris Pistorius, the defense minister, said, this underlines that we stand with Ukraine sustainably and reliably. That sort of sounds more like an announcement about a new sort of wind farm or something, doesn't it, rather than military aid. But uh, anyway, he was in Kiev this week. All the kind of body language and all the statements were were pretty positive, as indeed was uh, David Cameron, our new foreign secretary, who was saying pretty much that British support was uh, undiminished and would go on until the bitter end. So there is a bit of encouragement there. America also promised aid in the form of an announcement by the Pentagon on Monday that a new $100 million package would include artillery munitions, anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. But that's actually you know, dwarfed by the German offering and um, underlines the paucity of options that Joe Biden's government has since Congress rejected the latest $55 billion demand for aid for Ukraine from the Pentagon. We suggested that the war in Gaza wasn't good news for Ukraine because it would divert military resources from the US to Israel. Well, that's exactly what seems to have been the case with some 57,000 
155 millimeter artillery shells that were moved uh, from U.S. stocks in Israel over to Europe to U.S. European Command, uh, and they were intended then to be sent into Ukraine to restock munitions there. Well, that hasn't happened because since the start of the Gaza conflict, those shells have now been returned to the Middle East. So some encouraging signs saw, but I'm still, I'm afraid, not optimistic than that Ukraine can make gains, big gains anyway, on the battlefield in this sort of coming winter period. Um, and at the same time, you know, this strategy of hitting assets behind the lines also seems to have slowed down, doesn't it? Is, is that how you're reading it? Yes. I mean, it's concerning, isn't it? I made a big point last week of saying this, this was one of the key elements of their strategy, not just to attack and bite your head against a brick wall on the battlefield, but actually, you know, take out these assets uh, with long-range munitions. Well, there hasn't been anything on that front this week, and it may be, of course, because they simply don't have enough kit. They don't have enough ATACMs. They don't have enough Storm Shadows and Scalps. They've been supplied a relatively small amount, and they're having to be very selective about when and where they use them. This, of course, emphasizes the point which we keep making and which many other Western commentators are making. They need more kit. They need the long-range ATACMs. It's inevitable that winter conditions are going to slow the tempo of operations, and that's exactly the line coming out of the British MOD when it said this week that there were, and I quote, fewer immediate prospects of major changes on the front lines as cold winter weather begins to set in. That doesn't, I think, mean that there's not going to be any attempt in particular to expand the bridgehead over the Dnieper. I think that's the real area of opportunity but Patrick, what are your feelings about this? Are you thinking we are going to settle down now for a month or two and there's not really going to be much change on the front line? Well, I, you know, I don't know, Saul, but I, I would have thought, given all that sentiment, I suppose, coming from the soldiers themselves, I think you'd be a foolish commander to try and mount a large-scale operation with the consequent danger of large-scale large casualties in the current circumstances. And you know, if I was in charge, my feeling would be, well, let's just try and get through the winter, minimize casualties, and have a major rethink. And that's something that we're going to be talking about in part two. So do join us after the break when we'll be answering some fascinating listeners' questions, including one which asks, is it time for a major strategic rethink? Welcome back. Well, we'll start with some emails rather than questions. And the first is from Karen Roth in Anthem, Arizona. And she says, howdy from the USA. I started listening when Russia invaded Ukraine because I wanted intelligent analysis beyond news stories. And it's been quite wonderful. I was so pleased when you started doing episodes about the Israel-Hamas war, providing the same in-depth analysis. Please keep it up. The world needs your knowledge. Well, thank you, Karen, because as listeners will know, we've had a mixed response to our decision to look at Gaza, but uh, it's nice to know that some people appreciate it. We've had another one from uh, someone who wishes to remain anonymous. He says, hi, I was listening to your most recent podcast and your comments on what was then still called the Azov Battalion. This was a reference to um, a listener was asking whether there was a, a potential danger in post-war in the Azov Brigade in the thick of the fighting uh, in Mariupol, but they were always kind of a bit of a, a shadow hanging over them, suggestions that they had very far-right neo-Nazi indeed 
beliefs, convictions. Now, this has been downplayed since the war began, really. And indeed, Saul, you yourself were saying that you know, the evidence we heard from people who'd served alongside them was that there wasn't, they weren't neo-Nazis, that this was kind of basically Russian propaganda. There was but it was a disturbing counter-evidence here that certainly back in the day, that's the way it was. But our, our listener has attached some photographs that he took in late 2015 and this was when he visited an Azov a battalion, as it then was, position somewhere to the east of Mariupol, uh, which the Azov battalion were defending. Um, and he says, I wince when people play down their Nazi links. The rank and file did this, not their officers. And he then attached these photographs, which um, they are, you know, sort of graffiti sprayed on walls, swastikas, something, a kind of emblem that uh, he says you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to be able to hold it up in a mirror and see the SS runes, i.e. those um, lightning flash emblems that the SS uh, wore on their, on their uniforms. What do you make of that, Saul? That was then, you know, do you, do you think that the culture of the Azov people has changed since then? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, significant first-hand proof that there were certainly some people in the battalion, maybe you could say a, a big chunk of the battalion, had those sorts of beliefs. The counterpoint to that is, I mean, the, the alternative argument, of course, is one that's been given to us by people who've served alongside Azov uh, since the beginning of the Russian invasion in 2022, and they're very clear that those sort of extremist opinions have been weeded out. Now, whether that's just the rank of file, like I've been told, you know, frankly, this is not good publicity, you need to keep a lid on this, or whether they really have weeded out some of these characters, we don't know. If someone has evidence of members of the Azov battalion holding and propagating these views since the invasion proper, we'd be interested to hear them. But it's all Chris to the mill, so thank you very much for sending that in. Okay, we've got more praise here. We're doing well this week, aren't we, Saul? Uh, Saul and Patrick, keep up the great work with the Battleground Ukraine podcast. Saul, I thought your book Zulu was brilliant and really think you should consider getting it narrated and on the Audible platform. I'm surprised you haven't, Saul, because they often, they, they usually go straight to a, a kind of Audible format, don't they, these days? Yeah, I mean, it d- dates that book to be truthful, Patrick. I mean, it came out in... 2004. I mean, thank you, Rhett, uh, for, for the email. And actually, it's not a bad idea because uh, recently I was just having a chat with a, a, an actor friend of mine, Adam James, who's a great character, but he's also a brilliant voiceover artist. And he's voicing my forthcoming book on, on Sky Warriors. And I think I might throw him another bone by suggesting that to Penguin that they do do an audible of Zulu because it's sold, you know, I don't want to kind of buff my own reputation too much here, but it's still selling these days, Patrick. And a, Unlike you, I've only got two or three books that have actually paid off their advance. In other words, they've earned enough royalties for me to keep earning after the initial sum I was given at the beginning. And Zulu is one of them. So I would earn a little bit of money if it was on Audible. So I'm going to have to consider for sure. Yeah. He goes on to say, once the madness of Ukraine and Gaza is over, I would like to suggest that you, I don't know whether he's talking about you or me here. I think it's you. <laughs> consider writing a biography of a great South African, Sailor Milan, of Spitfire fame, not only an effective soldier, despite his Afrikaans upbringing, he was also a great advocate of non-racism. Well, on the subject of books that have actually outsold the advance, uh, my Fighter Boys, which came out at pretty much the same time as Zulu in 2003, that did indeed do just that. And Adolf Milan, better known to his RAF comrades as Sailor Milan, on account of the fact that he started life as a naval cadet in South Africa, was uh, featured in this book. He's a fascinating 
and admirable guy. He commanded 74 Squadron during the Battle of Britain. And at one point, he was Fighter Command's top ace. I think he had 28 air enemy aircraft shot down. But after the war, he went back to South Africa and uh, took up sheep farming, but very soon went into politics because uh, he felt impelled to oppose the National Party, who, were, who of course brought in the apartheid system. Now, Sailor Milan headed a progressive movement called the Torch Commando, which uh, unfortunately eventually fell apart, and that's triumphed. And he died aged only 53 of Parkinson's disease. Now, at his funeral, the government uh, forbade any members of the armed forces who were attending to wear uniform. And indeed, he wasn't actually allowed to have military honours, uh, wasn't allowed to have a military funeral. But I think that actually is a kind of honour in itself, don't you, Saul? Yeah, absolutely. And and also the name is intriguing, actually, Patrick, because it reminds me of a, one of my favourite books <laughs> about South Africa and the, and the whole apartheid period, and written by Rian Milan, um, yeah. and, uh, called My Trader's Heart. And do you know if there's a connection between the two? I think Milan is not an unusual name, but, but Rian Milan, very, very interesting character. Uh, I met him once, actually. Very sort of dashing guy. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he sort of did something that the he appeared to you know to be a sort of you know thoroughgoing uh, european sort of progressive and liberal but he did actually say look we've got an identity too you know we're called uh, we're called africanas because we we've been living in africa for hundreds of years you know we're white africans so it was a kind of interesting way of coming at that sort of whole south africa thing and seeing the subtleties and the contradictions which we find in all complicated political military situations don't we and it's so easy nowadays just to kind of see everything and these sort of instant, make these instant judgments, you know, as we're seeing in Gaza and I think to a lesser extent in Ukraine where things were more clear-cut morally. But yeah, no, a fascinating guy. We're getting off the beaten track here a little bit. So let's go back to the questions. Here's one from Richard. I'm growing concerned, he said, over Ukraine's relationship with its neighbor, Poland. First, the quarrel over grain exports in the summer and now the strike by Polish lorry drivers blocking the border. This can't be helpful for Ukraine. What are they doing to resolve these disputes? I mean, have you got any more insight into that? This is, this is Roger's territory. We're going to be getting Roger back, by the way, if any listeners are wondering what's happened to him, um, for our book special, which we're going to have just before Christmas. But frankly, we need to double check these things with Roger every now and again, don't we? Um, Patrick, any thoughts on this? Well, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit unclear what's going on here. I mean, this, um, if listeners haven't seen this story, about 3,000 Ukrainian trucks, certainly a few days ago, including trucks carrying fuel and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, was stuck on the Polish side of the border because Polish truckers are blockading those sort of uh, crossing points. Now, what are they complaining about? What, what's their beef? Well, it, it hasn't got anything to do directly with Ukraine. It's more, their argument is not with Ukraine, it's with their own government, who they say are failing to make up for the loss of business that these truckers are suffering or their companies are suffering because Foreign competitors are taking advantage of the of the conflict to sort of make inroads into their markets. Uh, this has been going on since February 2022. So it's, it's actually a sort of internal uh, Polish political dispute. But unfortunately, it's clearly having you know big consequences for Ukraine. I mean, 3,000 trucks, that's a hell of a lot of stuff, isn't it? It's a lot of fuel, a lot of humanitarian aid, which clearly is, is that its absence is not going to help Ukraine at all. So how you sort it out, I don't know. No. And, you know, our own experience, which I'm convinced we mentioned to listeners uh, when we went to Ukraine ourselves in August, 
getting through the border, all the problems were on the Polish side. It wasn't the Ukrainian side, both inside and out. And when we when we tried to get out of Ukraine and back into Poland, we had a horrendous six hour delay. And that was with no strikes going on. That was just, you know, normal issues. The Polish authorities making sure that every single thing was checked and every passport looked at and every bus emptied and inspected. I mean, ludicrously overzealous uh, officials trying. Who knows what they imagined would have been coming out of Ukraine, frankly, apart from, you know, relatives of, of families that were on the Polish side of the border, Ukrainian families on the Polish side of the border, uh, the odd NGO and, and people like us. So, you know, ludicrous stuff. And to think in normal times, it took up to six hours. We're probably talking about delays of days now. So, you know, horrendous, frankly. And for them to be in a sense, taking advantage of the conflict or at least flagging up the conflict and the impact it was having on them. You know, badly done, uh, in my view, when people are dying across the border. Absolutely. And the other thing is it was very understaffed, wasn't it? So they had a handful of officials there to deal with quite a lot of traffic and one couldn't help feeling that was also deliberate. Okay, moving on to Tony Lovell in Cape Cod. And he says, I wanted to offer an armchair general's idea of how Ukraine might break the arguable stalemate that stymied this year's counteroffensive. He says the fighting in 2023 has vividly demonstrated two important points. One, fortifications and deep mining, i.e. deep mine fields, I think he means, overwatched by drones will stymie combined arms efforts. A few F-16s added into the picture alongside a few more Western vehicles won't appreciably alter what happens in the minefields. Well, and I think that's a fair point. But then, on the more positive side, he said the Free Russian Legion's forays and Prigozhin's march, uh, this was, of course, you know, the famous revolt back in the summer, uh, demonstrated that Russian territory proper seems to be entirely undefended. The speed of advance in Russia is that limit posted on the highways. I wonder if the coming year's counteroffensive should not take the form of an end around into Russia near Valyuki, uh, then purely southward. He's talking about kind of looping around the top and back behind the, the Russian positions as they are now in, in eastern Ukraine. So basically bypassing the fortified front at its northeastern edge. He says such a path would be largely free of mines and fortification and re- would require Russia to do what they do worst, think on their feet. He goes on to point out all the advantages of it, and then if you combine that with dropping the Kerch Bridge, i.e. blowing up the Kerch Bridge, a legendary victory might result. Would this be easy, he asks? No. Would this be easier than crawling through the existing front at five or more locations? I am challenged, he says, to imagine it could be worse. Well, I think that's a fascinating analysis, Tony, and it may be that over the winter... The Ukrainian planners, you know, clearly they're going to be doing an awful lot of thinking and they may decide that the present course is hopeless and decide that something like this bold, and it's got to be a very risky option or something like it, is the way to go. Well, what's the risk? Obviously, uh, it's escalation first and foremost, isn't it? Russia may decide uh, that this is, uh, you know, a genuine, they've, they've, in propaganda terms, they've, they've made up that what's happening in eastern Ukraine is actually an incursion into their territory. This would be the real thing. And they might well decide to move up several levels, maybe to, to the level of tactical nukes. But they may not need to do that because I think such a move would seriously jeopardize Western support, or particularly American support for Ukraine, which has all along 
been strongly opposed, uh, that Washington has always been opposed to the idea of a Ukrainian military operations inside Russia's borders. So they might well move to stymie such a plan if they heard about it in advance. And they're definitely on current form, uh, pressurize Ukraine to stop uh, if they started it by threatening withdrawal of military support if it went ahead without US dollars. What do you think about it, Saul? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I think Tony's on to something here. We, 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 of course, voiced it before. Um, the ideal scenario was that they liberated their own lands from within Ukraine. And that way they are able to, you know, use the full panoply of kit that America's given to them. But the scenario on the battlefield now, this almost stasis that it settled down into, I do think even the Americans might be thinking, okay, we need to change our position on this a little bit. What we've seen over the last 18 months or so is that all these worries over escalation are, you know, imaginary, frankly. All, all those large red lines that Russia's put up have been breached. And each time there has been no escalation because, as we pointed out many times, there can't really be escalation. They don't have the option to start using chemical weapons uh, and nuclear weapons, even tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. So it is an option. And it may be that Ukraine thinks it's an option worth taking if the alternative is no movement in the lines and the inevitability, as we said, of course, during earlier on in the podcast, of, of some kind of negotiations, which are going to lead to probably some loss of territory, even with the sort of, you know, long-term guarantee of security that NATO membership would bring. So I'm not entirely sure this won't be in the minds of the Ukrainians. And uh, I suspect Tony Lovell might be getting a call from Ukrainian intelligence at some point, thanking him for the suggestion uh, and asking him for, you know, direct input. Now, obviously, I'm being a bit lighthearted there, but it, but it is an interesting thought. And war has an amazing capacity for getting to a point that you thought you'd never get to, but situation changes and all of a sudden, this is an opportunity. And let's face it, Patrick, there are nothing in the laws of war that say Ukraine shouldn't try this. In fact, quite the opposite. Yes. And I think seeing what's what's been happening in the, in the sort of late autumn period, I think the point has been reached when I can't really see that a huge sort of uh, uplift in the amount of of military kit they're getting is necessarily going to change the situation for the better come the spring. So, as you say, Saul, you know, war forces uh, radical thinking, radical decisions to be made. And on that point of future negotiations, if you're actually inside Russian territory, if you've actually taken and held Russian territory, you're then in a much better negotiating position. Uh, on a simple kind of, we'll get out of your territory if you get out of yours, you know. So it w- it could dramatically improve not just the military situation, but the overall political and diplomatic situation at the same time. So watch this space. Now, we've got a historical one here from Jeff, who says, uh, thanks for your excellent podcast. I especially enjoy your updates from Ukraine now that the media's attention has shifted to the Middle East. I'm currently reading Olivier Vierwilke's History of the Second World War, and I've just got up to the Battle of Kursk. I wonder if you could shed some parallels between the situation in Ukraine today and the events of 1943, as it struck me that this is the same terrain being fought over 80 years apart. I didn't know Olivier Vyorka uh, had written a history of the Second World War or of the Eastern Front. He's written a very outstanding book on, on the resistance in France. He's a French historian. So uh, that's where my area of expertise is. Yours very much is in the east, so you're going to watch this one, aren't you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting coming after the points we've just made uh, in responding to the previous question, because the Battle of Kursk was fought, of course, inside Russia, but not that far inside Russia in relation to the modern border with Ukraine. And what was going on, just to orientate the listeners, is that, of course, you've got Stalingrad concluding in the early part of 1943, and then uh, major Russian advances thereafter that effectively won them what was known as the Kursk salient. So they retook the city of Kursk. Uh, but there was a big bulge uh, outside of Kursk that the Germans, of course, wanted to uh, knock out, hence the Battle of Kursk. Now, what actually happened in that battle, and it was significant because it was the last major offensive that the Germans launched on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, was that two panzer armies attacked the Kursk salient, one from the north and one from the south, in what develops into the largest tank engagement in history. That's why a lot of nerdy military historians will uh, bang on about the Battle of Kursk because it has this sort of unique clash between the panzers and uh, Russian tanks, mainly the T-34s. Now, the Russians have many more tanks. They had about 5,000 tanks during this battle. The Germans about 2,500. But there's a bit of a myth in the battle. The, the so-called Battle of Prokhorovka, which is a kind of battle within a battle that takes place on the 12th of August, I think it was, uh, 1943. And this is the kind of decisive clash. And even Putin himself references this battle and the fact that this is where the panzer force of the German army was completely knocked out. 400 panzers allegedly destroyed. Well, actually, a recent book by a very brilliant young British military historian called Ben Wheatley has completely overturned this myth and pointed out that only about 30 panzers, believe it or not, were actually lost that day at Prokhorovka whereas the Russians lost about four or 500 tanks. So actually, it was a massive massacre of Soviet armor that day. But the broader point, I think, and really the relevance of the question in its entirety, is that it was still a Soviet victory because uh, they, the Germans did not manage to knock out the Kursk salient. And of course, you know, it was back all the way to Berlin from that point. And I, I suppose the question that is being asked is, is the failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive going to lead to a similar sort of end game for the Ukrainians? No, I don't think it is. I don't think you could say for a minute, as some other podcasts apparently have been saying, Patrick, this week, that uh, Russia is actually winning the war. I don't, I don't think that for a second. If you consider the situation at the start of this major invasion of Ukraine and where we are now, it's really been a humiliation for Russia in many, many different ways. But it is true, of course, that they are still holding bigger chunks of territory than they held at the beginning of the invasion in 2022. And the question is, can, as we've been asking all the way through, can Ukraine find a way to get that territory back? Well, as you've just uh, pointed out, Saul, definitions of victory and defeat uh, on the Russian side are rather different to what, uh, what we would imagine them to be. Got a question here, actually, which has been intriguing me from Glenn saying, I listen every week to your podcast regarding Ukraine. Last week, you were discussing whether Ukraine would run out of men to fight in the war. What about women? Surely you can't fight any modern war with only half your population. We don't hear much about female fighters, do we, in, in Ukraine, Saul, on the front at least. And, you know, as with all crucial statistics, military statistics, the uh, Ukrainians are very loath to actually put them into the public domain. I mean, the only numbers I've been able to discover were in an Al Jazeera report back in September when they said there were about 50,000, 50,000 women serving in the Ukrainian armed forces in combat and non-combat roles 
on the combat roles, it seems like 10,000 are on the front lines or in jobs that send them to the front lines. Now, that was actually quoting Ukrainian military officials, so a rare, rare example of some, some actual sort of hard fact. But yeah, I mean, what they actually do that we have had report, you know, clearly there are sort of, you know, combat medics, female combat medics who are up in the front lines, etc. But as for actual female soldiers, I haven't seen much in the way of individual reports. And I think on that question of just mobilization, given what we've been talking about earlier, about trying to sustain morale, about trying to keep public spirits up, I think if you actually, the authorities now move to try and mobilize more women and get them nearer the, the actual sort of, you know, sharp end of the, of the effort, of the war effort, um, that would not necessarily play very well with public opinion. No, but it is interesting. It's an interesting counterpoint in Israel, isn't it? If we're going to you know, derive any benefit from the fact also covering the Gazan war and your old links to Israel, Patrick, is that we know that the Israeli army has a significant number of women in all types of roles, including frontline combat roles. And of course, when the fighting began uh, last month with the incursion into Israel, a lot of Israeli soldiers killed in that initial incursion were women because they do play, you know, all kinds of different roles. So it may be a sort of cultural move that is necessary here, Patrick, and I totally take your point, it's not going to be popular, but nevertheless, as, as Glenn points out, they are a resource, and it may be at some point that they need to draft more women into frontline combat roles. I mean, after all, when Russia was fighting its war of survival against the Nazis in the Second World War, a lot of women were taking part in the actual fighting, and who knows, it may one day come to that in Ukraine too. Well, that's enough for this week. Uh, do join us next Wednesday when we'll be returning to Gaza and digging into all the latest developments there. Just a reminder, do keep your questions coming. They're a big part of the podcast. We love answering them. So keep them coming to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. Goodbye. <laughs>